Hey everybody, my name is Sarah Kreger. I'm an emergency physician and intensivist at UCLA, and this is the ICUVDU podcast. So today we're going to talk about thoughtful use of first bicarb and then of calcium. And I'm posting this because the other day uh, on shift, one of the residents asked me, quote, are you in favor of using bicarb? And I thought that was a really funny way to ask the question. Um, but I can kind of see why they asked it, because I imagine that when they proposed in the past using bicarb to a variety of other attendings, some people are like, yeah, fantastic, give an amp bicarb. And other people get very upset and start ranting about how bicarb is awful and why would you ever use it? So, uh, I am... I don't know, somewhere in between. I mean, I can't really say I'm in favor or not in favor of bicarb because it really depends how you use it. Now, the people who I think are really not, quote, in favor of using bicarb are very upset when somebody proposes it because they feel like often we're proposing using it for a reason that makes no sense. And the wrong reason to use bicarb is if you're like, ah, the patient has a low pH, therefore I shall give bicarb, call it a day. That doesn't make any sense. That is not rational use of bicarb. But I think there's a lot of good uses of bicarb. It just depends what you're using it for and if you're using it in a thoughtful, rational way. So the way that I like to break this down in terms of what are you using it for is into three categories. One, are you using it to fix a problem? Two, are you using it to temporize a situation? Or three, are you using it to break a vicious cycle? So we're going to talk about use of bicarb and figure out when does it fall into one of those three categories. Then we're going to apply the same reasoning to calcium. So let's start with bicarb. And the first thing we have to talk about is what all does it do? Because in order to understand when to appropriately use it and when not to use it, we need to understand exactly what it's doing here. So the first and foremost thing that it does is it accepts a proton. You give somebody bicarb and then you accept a proton and great, right? That's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to improve your acidosis. Oh, wait, except there's a catch because when bicarb, accepts a proton. This thing happens where carbonic anhydrase converts it into CO2 plus H2O. Now, we see this all the time, even if we don't know it. So for example, when we're pushing bicarb during a code, sometimes what'll happen is we'll get all excited because we'll see a bump on the end tidal CO2. And we're like, yes, we are getting ROSC, when in reality, no, that's not what that means. It's just that if you push bicarb, then your end tidal CO2, you're going to see a bump. Or, you know, you may notice that if you push an ampibicarb fast in an awake patient, sometimes they'll transiently get kind of agitated and anxious. Why is that happening? Well, what's often happening is that that bicarb is rapidly getting converted into CO2. They get this CO2 bump. And what does a sort of moderate CO2 do? It makes people feel a little anxious, right? They increase their respiratory drive to blow it off. Now, the other implication of that is that if you're pushing bicarb in an awake patient, they're going to increase their minute ventilation spontaneously because that's what you do when you're awake. You know, the CO2, the higher CO2 bumps you to increase your minute ventilation. But if we have a patient who's ventilated and sedated or maybe still paralyzed, we push bicarb and we don't go up on the minute ventilation on the vent, then we're not really helping all that much because we're failing to blow off the CO2 in a timely manner. So 
bicarb accepts a proton and gets converted into CO2 plus H2O. Now, the other thing here is that if you can't clear that CO2, so for example, if you have bad COPD and the patient is breathing, they can't clear the CO2. They have bad asthma, they can't clear their CO2 because um, they're in an asthma exacerbation. Or maybe if they have a bunch of physiologic dead space and they can't clear their CO2 because their VQ matching is all messed up. If you push bicarb in a patient that for whatever reason can't clear their CO2, all you have accomplished is converting your metabolic acidosis into a respiratory acidosis, and you have gotten yourself precisely nowhere. So that's the first thing that bicarb does, except the proton gets converted into CO2. The second thing to keep in mind about bicarb is that it's really hypertonic. Sodium bicarb is 8.4%. That's really hypertonic. And so the other thing that it does is gives you a rapid intravascular volume bolus. In fact, often if I'm pushing bicarb, um, especially in a patient with an A-line, I actually like to push it myself and I watch the A-line while I'm giving it because it just gives me one more data point in terms of, wow, how is my patient responding to this rapid intravascular volume bolus because it's so hypertonic. Now, thing number next about bicarb and what it's doing is that it's sodium bicarb. So you're talking about you're giving 8.4% sodium, right? Now, depending on the situation, that may be a good or bad thing. But keep in mind, when you're given the bicarb, it's not just the bicarb you're giving, it's also the sodium. And then the last major thing to keep in mind about bicarb and what it does is that it shifts your potassium into cells, thereby decreasing your serum potassium. And again, depending on the situation, that may be a good or bad thing, but that's something that it's going to do. Given all of those things that bicarb does, let's go back to our three categories of why you might give bicarb. Again, the three categories are one, if you want to fix a problem, two, giving it to temporize a situation, and three, using it to break a vicious cycle. So um, in terms of fixing a problem, there are very few situations in which bicarb truly fixes your problem. And I think the most important thing to remember about this is that if you have an anion gap metabolic acidosis, if you have a lactic acidosis, if you have a ketoacidosis, bicarb will not fix your problem. If you have an anion gap metabolic acidosis, what you need to do is figure out why it's happening and fix the underlying cause. Pushing bicarb isn't really going to fix anything. When does bicarb fix your problem? Well, when bicarb is actually going to fix your problem is a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis. Why? Well, there's two reasons. There's two categories here where bicarb is going to fix your problem in a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis. The first is if you have a hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis. Now, when you have a hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis, what's happening here is that your strong ion difference, the difference between your sodium and your chloride is narrowed. And that is going to give you a non-gap acidosis. And when you're giving bicarb here, yeah, you're giving something that accepts a proton. That's great. But remember, it also has a ton of sodium. And sodium that's not paired with chloride as an anion, but with bicarb. So you're giving a bunch of functionally chloride-free sodium. And that is going to widen your strong ion difference and correct, to some extent, your hyperchloremic acidosis. Now, the second reason why bicarb can help you in a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis, the second category of these, is when you're losing bicarb or maybe potential bicarb in the urine. So for example, in a renal tubular acidosis, you're just straight up losing bicarb in the urine because your kidneys can't maintain it. 
If you have bad renal failure, your kidneys can't retain bicarb. You're losing bicarb in the urine. And then sometimes you have a situation like post-DKA, like in DKA, once your ketoacidosis is resolving, you've basically fixed the DKA. What can happen is if the patient's making a lot of urine, what they can start doing is excreting all those keto acids as sodium salts. And what that means is that those keto acids are no longer available to accept a proton because they get excreted as a sodium salts. So functionally, when that happens, you're losing what we call potential bicarb in the urine. So if you're losing bicarb in the urine, either actual bicarb or potential bicarb, actually giving bicarb may fundamentally fix your problem. But those are really the only two major situations where bicarb is going to fix your problem, the two causes of non-anion gap metabolic acidosis. Now, when is bicarb more useful? Well, bicarb can be really useful to temporize situations. So, for example, hyperkalemia, right? That's why we give bicarb in hyperkalemia. We are temporizing the situation. We're saying, yes, ultimately, we need to get the potassium off the body by, you know, giving Lasix or dialyzing the patient. But in the meantime, we don't really want all that potassium hanging out in the serum. So I'm going to give some bicarb and shift the potassium into the cells, thereby decreasing the serum potassium and temporizing the situation until I can actually fix it by getting the potassium out of the body. Similar with a TCA overdose, right? If I have a tricyclic antidepressant overdose, um, I'm going to give bicarb. Why? Well, does bicarb cause more excretion of TCA and get you to clear it faster? No, but you're stabilizing things both in terms of the myocardium for arrhythmias and the neurons for seizures. I'm trying to temporize, stabilize things in the meantime till I can actually get rid of the TCA. Now, the last category breaking a vicious cycle. And this is a way that I'll certainly use bicarb, although I try and do it thoughtfully. So for example, there's, you know, there's many vicious cycles in critical care. And I think it's really important to be able to identify them when you're in one and how you break out of it. Um, but one example is vasodilatory shock. Okay. So I'm going into vasodilatory shock. As I'm going into worsening shock, I'm getting more acidemic, right? My shock is causing me to be acidemic. Now, unfortunately, acidemia causes me two problems here. One, acidemia can cause or exacerbate vasoplegia. And two, pressors don't work as well when a perfation is profoundly acidemic. So now I'm in this situation when I'm in vasodilatory shock. That causes acidemia, which causes vasoplegia, which causes the shock to get worse. Then I try and give pressors, except, oh wait, my pressors aren't working because I'm acidemic. So then I get more vasoplegic, more vasodilatory. I go into worsening shock. I get more acidemic and off we go on a vicious cycle. So sometimes I will use bicarb transiently in that situation. If I am just sort of trying to break this vicious cycle, raise their pH enough so that one, my pressors start kicking in, and two, I sort of temporize that vasoplegia. So now maybe I can break that vicious cycle, start a positive cycle, where now my cells are receptive to the pressors, and I start raising my blood pressure, decreasing my shock, and so forth. That's one situation. Another situation is in massive hemorrhage, hemorrhagic shock. So we all remember the vicious triad of hemorrhagic shock, right? Uh, coagulopathy, acidemia, hypothermia. Now, bicarb is not helping you with the hypothermia, but it can help you otherwise because you're in this situation when you're bleeding, bleeding, bleeding. You're 
getting acidemic because you're going into hemorrhagic shock. That acidemia is exacerbating the coagulopathy, which then causes more hemorrhage and vicious cycle away. So sometimes I will push bicarb in that situation as well to try and break the vicious cycle involving acidemia, coagulopathy, and hemorrhage. Bicarb can also be useful sometimes in hemorrhagic shock if you're massively transfusing, because sometimes those patients can get hyperkalemic, for sure. Now, something to note about both of these situations, vasodilatory shock and hemorrhagic shock, they're both situations in which it's not a bad thing and is probably even a good thing to give a rapid intravascular volume bolus. That's not really going to hurt those patients. That's as opposed to in maybe cardiogenic shock when I would contemplate it but think about the costs and benefits if I'm trying to break the vicious cycle um, of cardiogenic shock using bicarb, because yes, that may help my pressors work better, but on the other hand, is it going to help me because I'm giving a volume bolus? That's not really going to help me. So I'm much more hesitant to use it in something when the downside of a volume bolus can actually hurt me. Another example of when I wouldn't use bicarb is most of the time in DKA, right? Why? Well, the point in DKA is to fix the underlying process. Usually, the rate-limiting step to fixing your ketoacidosis in DKA is not being able to give enough insulin. Why can't we give enough insulin? Because the potassium is low. What am I going to do by giving bicarb? Further lower the potassium. So I think often in DKA, I'm just shooting myself in the foot by giving bicarb because I'm ultimately dropping the potassium, which makes it harder for me to fix the underlying problem. There's two situations in DKA when sometimes I'll consider it. One is if I, for some horrible reason, have to intubate a severely acidemic patient. Sometimes I will rapidly push bicarb right before intubation, both because it gives me that volume bolus and I'm just trying to temporize and get them to not code and die during intubation, fix the rest later. Sometimes I'll do that, rarely. Most of the time I try not to intubate those patients to begin with. But the other time is post-DKA, right? Because often what I see happening post-DKA, and I've seen this happen a couple times, is that the gap will close, but they still have a metabolic acidosis. It's just now a non-gap acidosis. And often that's for two reasons. One, because we've given them way too much sodium chloride. We've given them all these boluses of NS, so we've artificially narrowed their strong ion difference. One. And two, because often, especially if the patient has good renal function, they're peeing out all those ketones as sodium salts, losing potential bicarb in the urine. So post-DKA, if my patient has a non-gap acidosis post-DKA, then at that point, sometimes I will give bicarb because that's going to fix my problem. Not the DKA itself, but the post-DKA non-gap acidosis. Now, it's also totally reasonable to just leave those patients alone. But if you have this patient boarding in the ED and their gap is 6, but their bicarb is 14 and medicine is losing their minds and doesn't want to admit them, bicarb can help you in that situation. And insulin won't actually fix that problem because it's no longer a ketoacidosis that's causing your issue. Now, what about a situation? We had this once uh, with one of my residents where we had a situation where it was a patient with a massive PE. And this patient had both a metabolic and a respiratory acidosis. So the metabolic acidosis was caused by the fact that the patient was in shock, right? They were in cardiogenic shock from acute RV failure due to a massive PE. But they also had a high CO2. Now, 
Why was that? Well, sometimes in massive PE, you can get a lot of physiologic dead space, right? Because what's happening, you have all this clot in the pulmonary circulation. And what that means is that you have these places in the lungs that are now ventilated, but not perfused. And that's what happens with dead space ventilation. You have all this wasted ventilation where you're moving CO2 in and out of the alveoli, but it does you no good whatsoever because those alveoli are not perfused. CO2 is not getting brought to those alveoli. So that's dead space. And you can hyperventilate somebody as much as you want want to if you have a big physiologic dead space fraction and you won't get yourself anywhere because of the physiologic dead space because you can't get the CO2 to those alveoli you're trying to move air in and out of. Now, giving bicarb in that situation, probably not the cleverest idea. Why? Well, one, giving a rapid intravascular volume bolus to a patient with a massive PE, probably not a super clever plan. But two, Remember how bicarb gets converted into CO2 and H2O. And if this patient has bad physiologic dead space, they can't clear that CO2. So all we will have done is one, given a intravascular volume bolus, and two, converted our metabolic acidosis into a respiratory acidosis and not helped ourselves at all. So those are two examples of times when giving bicarb is more likely to hurt us rather than help us. So those are my thoughts about thoughtful use of bicarb. It all depends on what you're using it for. Now we're going to quickly apply the same kind of logic to calcium. Um, and it's not just that calcium and bicarb sit next to each other in the code cart. It's just that I find myself using a similar thought process to decide when to give calcium, especially pushes of calcium chloride. So let's apply the same thought process. First, with calcium chloride, let's talk about what all does it do? Well, the most obvious thing is obviously it increases your calcium levels. But the less obvious things are a couple. The next one is helps you with inotropy and vasoplegia, right? So it helps vasoconstrict and give extra inotropy. I mean, you know, this is why calcium channel blockers, what do they do? They decrease our inotropy. They decrease vasoconstriction. That's why we use them as beta or like beta blockers that we use them as antihypertensive and antiarrhythmics. Um, but giving a bunch of calcium can increase your inotropy and support vasovascular tone. Um, an important thing to remember about how it does this that I think is really relevant when I'm thinking about how to use calcium is that calcium acts very downstream. So in general, the more downstream the mechanism is of whatever drug you're using, often the more effective it can be because it just straight up bypasses everything else. I mean, this is why, for example, nitroglycerin can be so effective because it goes all the way downstream, bypasses everything else. And so, you know, if your upstream things like your adrenergic receptors are having problems, not functioning, or, you know, you gave something to those receptors, if you bypass them by going downstream, it can be very effective. And that's what calcium does, right? Calcium, if you just give a big bolus of calcium, mechanistically, it acts very downstream in the cellular pathways to support your inotropy and vasoconstriction. Last thing, calcium stabilizes the myocardial membranes. Basically what it's doing is making your threshold potentials less negative is what it's doing to stabilize them. And so stabilizing myocardial membranes, we don't use it that often for that, but when we do, it can be helpful. Now, a couple issues to be aware of 
with calcium chloride. One is that it's actually a problem if it extravasates. I feel like, uh, you know, we get calls all the time from pharmacy losing their minds about giving things like 3% sodium, uh, because that may extravasate. We have to give you the central line. And there's all kinds of things that everybody freaks out about that, you know, yeah, I suppose we should give through a central line, but like, it's okay. Everybody take a breath. But calcium chloride, like really actually can cause badness if it extravasates. So that's one. And so really like, try very hard to push it through a central line. If you're going to go through a peripheral, calcium gluconate is going to be the way to go here. Um, but two, you know, there's some interesting, mostly basic science research on the role that excess calcium can play in cell death, particularly during reperfusion. So, you know, for example, if I have a stroke patient who is going to go uh, maybe to cath lab and get reperfused or get TPA and hopefully get hypothetically reperfused, or if I have a STEMI patient or an OMI patient who is going to go to cath lab and hopefully get reperfused, um, giving a whole bunch of excess calcium may not be optimal in those patients. Okay, so that's what all calcium does and major issues to be aware of. Now let's go back and talk about our three categories fixing the problem, temporizing a situation, or breaking a vicious cycle, and how we might think about using calcium in those situations. So fixing the problem, well, this one's obvious. If the patient is hypocalcemic and you give them calcium, that fixes your problem, done. And I'm particularly sensitive to their calcium levels in two situations. One, vasodilatory shock. If I think my patient is vasoplegic for any reason, and I am having issues, and I'm escalating my pressors, and, you know, I'm not super acidemic, and I think I'm circulating them, but they're just really vasoplegic, and I think there's any chance that they have even relatively low calcium levels, I'll give some calcium to help support vasoconstriction. And then in hemorrhagic shock, because in hemorrhagic shock, we are giving a bunch of blood products, right? We're massively transfusing the patient. Fantastic. But remember, along with those blood products, we're giving citrate. And the citrate likes to chelate calcium. And so I, you know, even though I haven't, you know, excreted the calcium, I'm chelating it so it doesn't do any good to the body once I do that. And so that's the other time that giving calcium actually will fix the problem of citrate chelating your calcium. Those are the two major and obvious times that calcium is going to actually fix a problem. But we do use calcium frequently to temporize situations, and the most common one is in hyperkalemia. So unlike bicarb, calcium is not actually trying to move around the potassium, right? It's not relocating the potassium anywhere. But what is it doing? It's temporizing our situation by stabilizing the myocardial membrane, because that's our biggest concern in hyperkalemia, right, is dysrhythmias. And so calcium temporizes the situation by stabilizing the myocardial membrane until hopefully we can get rid of the potassium. You can also use it to sort of temporize the situation if you maybe got a little overzealous with the calcium channel blocker and the patient's getting a little hypotensive. You can try and temporize the situation by trying to overcome that calcium channel blocker by giving a bunch of calcium while then waiting for the effect to wear off as the calcium channel blocker is cleared. And then same thing, hypermagnesemia. If your patient is super hypermagnesemic, and most of the time you're going to see this in maybe the OB patients who uh, are on magdrips, because most of the time it's really rare to really see non-iatrogenic hypermagnesemia. 
But again, this is another situation where dysrhythmias can be a big problem, dysrhythmias and neurologic effects. And calcium will do the same thing here. It'll help stabilize your membranes, your neuronal and myocardial membranes. So that's another situation when, as you're trying to get rid of the mag, you can temporize the situation by using calcium. Now, lastly, breaking a vicious cycle. I don't use calcium like this commonly, but I will very occasionally in a particular situation. Um, and that is if I have a patient who I think is in profound cardiogenic shock, not so much in the situation of an acute MI necessarily, because especially if they're about to get reperfused, I'm a little cautious about that um, because of the cell death thing we talked about before. But if I have somebody in a cardiogenic shock from RV or LV systolic failure, either my RV or my LV is just not moving things forward. And I think I'm in a vicious cycle whereby I'm in cardiogenic shock. Therefore, I have poor forward flow. Because of my forward flow problems, I'm not circulating either my inotropes that I'm giving them. So I'm trying to help the forward flow by circulating inotropes, but I'm not circulating them because I have no forward flow. And I need to give Lasix. And in order to get the Lasix to work, one, I need to have the Lasix circulate, but two, the kidneys need to be convinced that they have enough forward flow that they want to make urine. And so because of the forward flow, I'm not circulating my onotropes, I'm not circulating my Lasix, I am not getting the kidneys convinced that they need to make some urine, that puts me into worsening cardiogenic shock, so then I have worsening forward flow, off we go on a vicious cycle. If I am desperate, and I am like, this patient is decompensating, this is not going well, and I think that I need to just sort of break this forward flow vicious cycle, sometimes I will try giving a bolus of calcium chloride and making sure that that's not my problem, seeing if I can just break that vicious cycle. I don't do it often, but sometimes if I'm desperate, I will try that. So that is when I use it to break a vicious cycle. In summary, for both bicarb and calcium chloride, I can't say that I'm in favor of using them or not using them. I think it really just depends. Are you using them in an intelligent, thoughtful way? And when you're thinking about using both of these drugs, be thoughtful and say, okay, am I using it to fix a problem, to temporize a situation, or to break a vicious cycle? And if it's not in one of those categories, am I using it in a way that makes sense? Thanks so much for listening.